Hi, this is Pastor Dave Rosales, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. If you've been impacted by these Bible studies, we'd like to hear from you. Whether you're listening through iTunes, Google Play, or any other platform, tap on the stars and leave us a review. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. If you'd like to support this ministry, would you consider partnering with us? Visit our website at calvaryccv.org and click on Give. You can leave us a one-time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support. And now let's begin today's message. Today we're going to be looking at uh, verses 5 through 9. Allow me to read to you these verses and we'll get into our study. Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 through 9. Paul writes, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. You masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Now, when we began our study here in the book of Ephesians, I pointed out that this book, six chapters, could actually be divided into three sections or three parts. And each part or each section can be identified by a single word. So the words sit, walk, and stand actually breaks up the entire book of Ephesians. You see, the foundation of what we do is built on the foundation of what we believe. And because of this, chapters 1 through 3 here in Ephesians give us insight into our position in Christ. Let me remind you of a few things that, that Paul has said. He had said in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, that we are alive together with Christ, raised up together, and seated together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, the word sit comes into mind. He says that both Jew and Gentile have become one in Jesus Christ. And that has been done so that, that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we're seated in Christ. And as Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners, we are now fellow citizens with the saints. We're members of the household of God. Paul went on to tell us because we're seated in Christ that we have, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And because of this, we, we can know who we are and we also can know what we are to do. Because he said in Ephesians 2 verse 10 that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So knowing our position in Jesus gives us the basis for the life that we live. Now, after speaking of our position, he went on to speak of our way of life. In chapter 4, and verse 1, he said, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. So when he said, I beseech you, I beg you to walk appropriately, to walk worthy, that's what he's speaking of, to live a life that is appropriate of a worthy gospel. You see, when you know who you are, and when you know who you serve, then you live to please him. It's like what he had said to the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 10, 
when he had said, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing, he says, in the knowledge of God. And so when we're walking worthy of the gospel, we are living a holy life. When he was writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, Paul said he has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And this grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. So this understanding of who we are in Christ fuels the way that we live today. We walk in humility, he said. We walk in gentleness. We walk in long-suffering. We bear with one another. We endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He said, because of this, we exercise spiritual gifts under biblical instruction. We grow in discernment. We reject false doctrine. We, le we learn to speak the truth in love. He also was speaking about how we will mature in Jesus Christ and that we will all do our share as we serve the Lord together. When you're walking appropriately, we, we put off concerning our former conduct because we're being renewed in the Spirit. We speak truth to one another. We, we reject growing angry with each other. We become generous. We work with our own hands. We reject corrupt communication. We lovingly edify. We put away bitterness. We put away wrath, anger, clamor, and all evil speaking. We're kind to one another. We're tenderhearted, and we forgive one another. And that's the result of knowing who we are in Jesus, and that's the result of walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we saw in Ephesians 5, verse 18, that Paul wrote, be filled with the Spirit. You see, when the Holy Spirit fills our lives, we have power to live for Jesus Christ. And it's been my experience over time to see this. It can happen in my own life. It has, and I see it happens quite frequently in the lives of many who profess Christ, that there are many who are professing Christ who live a powerless life. They live a defeated life. It seems like they take one step forward and two step back constantly. And they don't understand sometimes that, uh, or maybe much of the time, that doing all of this on your own or trying in your own strength, it only leads to a struggle every day. The answer to that is to open our hearts to live a spirit-filled life, a spirit-controlled life. We need His power. You need his power to live a life that's worthy of the gospel. He had said in Galatians 5, verse 16, he said to the Galatians, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He said in Galatians 5, 25, if, if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. If there's something missing in the church today, it's the power and presence of the spirit of God in the personal lives of the believers. There are many pastors who stand up and encourage the church to walk in the spirit. And some of them get kind of a little carried away on, the, on that platform to try and show what the Holy Spirit can do in a person's life and all. But one of the things I learned very early in my walk with the Lord and I've been learning all these years has been that if I attempt to fulfill the desires of the Lord in my heart by, by my own flesh, then I'm doomed to failure. But when I die to myself and I say, God, I can't do this, I've, I've had it, I need your help, I need your power, God has a way of coming to the rescue. And so I'm learning to and have learned to and continue to seek to walk in the Holy Spirit. Because of this, I think that the church needs to be reminded that, that we can walk in the flesh, but we'll never fulfill the desires of the Spirit. And there is a credibility gap in the church today, today because of that. You see, sometimes we don't look like what we're saying a Christian is. And because of this, our words are drowned out by the way we live. 
We need to remember something. We need to remember something of the history of the nation of Israel. We need to remember all the way back when you begin reading your Bible that the the nation of Israel was given 10 commands or 10 words, 10 commandments by God himself. And in these commands, he said things like, you shall have no false gods, no graven image. You're not to take his name in vain. He said, you must remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. He said, honor your parents. You must not murder, commit adultery, steal. You must not bear false witness. You must not covet. And those commandments were intended to provide a place of blessing for those who kept them, as well as fellowship with God and those who also kept them. You see, in obeying his commandments, the nation was promised something. The nation was promised to be blessed by God. In Deuteronomy 5.29, it says, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. In Leviticus, another Old Testament book, chapter 18, verse 5, God said, You shall keep my statutes and my judgments, by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Well, Israel was commanded not to make any images of God. They worshiped what was called the invisible God, and they did so amongst the pagan idolaters that surrounded them. You see, idolaters had gods that were visible and they were tangible. They were, they were idols, and they worshiped the idols that were made by human hands. But Israel had no visible emblem of the invisible God. The pagans couldn't understand how they could worship a God that they couldn't see. And even in our day, many cannot believe in anything that they can't see or that, that, that they cannot feel. So the question is this, how did God solve the problem of his invisibility? Well, he solved it by taking upon himself human flesh. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him. Well, someone says that supposedly took place 2,000 years ago. Is there any way to see this invisible God today? And the answer is yes. How can you see the invisible God? Well, one of the ways that God made it possible to see the invisible God was to see the work of God in his church. The God who made himself visible in Jesus Christ now makes himself visible through us. God created a community that should make him visible to the people. It's called the church. He makes himself visible through his children, children who are imitators of God. He makes himself visible through those who live sexually pure lives. He does so through those who reject filthiness and foolish talk and even corrupt communication, dirty jokes. He does so through those who walk, as the Scripture says, as children of light. He does so through those who follow Jesus because God uses them to reveal Jesus to the world. And that really is our mission. You see, the Spirit's power flows into and out of all areas of our lives. We believers have drunk from the living water, and that living water flows from us. The water of life isn't intended just for us, though. It's intended to flow out towards others. We're not to be reservoirs of the Holy Spirit. We're to be conduits of the Spirit. That's why in John 7, 38, Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the Scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is to empower every area of our lives. It's the power of the gospel, 
that reaches and changes people. And it's most effective when the one presenting the gospel lives by it. Now, I was reading, and I had read of a, of a man who was sharing Christ with a Hindu and, and was sharing how that Christ transforms us, how when you receive Christ as Lord and Savior, He transforms our lives. We become new creations. Old things are passed away. He was sharing that with his Hindu, but the Hindu said something that, that we need to honestly consider. The Hindu said to this Christian, if this conversion is truly supernatural, why is it not more evident in the lives of so many Christians that I know? Some of you won't remember even the name, perhaps many may. Uh, Gandhi, his name was Mohandas Gandhi, but they called him Mahatma Gandhi. Do you remember him or of him? The word Mahatma means great soul. It was kind of the title they gave to him. But you know what Gandhi once said, and I've never forgotten this. As a matter of fact, I wrote it down so I could share it with you. Gandhi said this. Gandhi said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. So we need the Holy Spirit. You see, many Buddhists and Hindus can be kinder and even more gracious than Christians. Someone asked the question, how can we who teach the loftiest truths ever taught live so inconsistently? Well, the general reason is neglecting the reading of the Word of God. The general reason is rejecting what we read and not being taught. And it also can be because we don't rely on the Spirit. So as we've been looking at Ephesians up to this point, Paul has taught that the Holy Spirit fills our lives, the Holy Spirit fills our marriages, the Holy Spirit fills our homes as we raise our children. He even invades the ordinary part of our lives, including our jobs. Somebody said, if the Spirit doesn't go with us to work, then what is the point of being a Christian? So at this point, Paul continues to teach concerning life in the Spirit, and he's approaching what today we would call the workplace. So that's your introduction. Let's get into our study. Verse 5, bondservants. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ. During the writing of this letter, slavery was a fact of life. It is recorded that there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Slavery in Rome was not based on race, yet most slaves were foreigners. Slaves were obtained as war prisoners, sold in the marketplace. Some were sold into slavery by poor parents, and others would voluntarily sell themselves as what we call indentured servants. Slaves were looked at as commodities. They were owned by a master. One Roman writer divided agricultural instruments into three classes. The articulate, which were slaves because they could speak. The inarticulate, which are animals. And the mute, which were simply basic tools used by the man. Many felt them to be their property and did not feel that they were worth caring about. There was a Roman senator as well as a, a historian named Cato, and uh, 
he lived in 234 to 149 BC. And Cato said, old slaves should be thrown on a dump. And when a slave is ill, do not feed him anything. It isn't worth your money. He also advised masters to take six slaves and throw them away because they're nothing but inefficient tools. That's the condition that the church was birthed in, in an area, in a, a, a place where slavery was accepted, and many Christians were slaves. It's interesting as you read your portion here, Paul didn't come against slavery. Notice that. Nowhere in his writings does he come against it, which I find interesting. But, but even though Paul and no other apostle, even Christ himself, never came against it, yet slavery was abolished. But how is it that it was abolished? How did Christianity triumph over ancient slavery? Well, let me share this with you as I lay a little bit more of a foundation. First, the gospel message changed the master's attitude towards the slaves. No longer did he see them as worthless or useless. No longer did he look at them as living tools. They were now seen as people worthy of love and respect. And they were also beginning to be considered uh, to be compensated for the services that they rendered. So the gospel changed the master's attitude. Second, the knowledge of God's love for them fostered a sense of dignity within themselves. They knew that they were not simply animals. They were human beings. They knew that they were created in the image of God. And being made in the image of God, they were not less than their masters. And then third, it taught masters and slaves that they were brothers in the Lord. And that really is what, what did, uh, 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 you know, dealt a great blow to slavery. When you read your Bible, there's a book there called Philemon. And uh, Philemon is, is a book that deals with uh, a man named Philemon, quite obviously, as well as somebody named Onesimus. And this book, the book of Philemon, deals with how to deal with a runaway slave because Onesimus was a runaway slave from the household of Philemon. Now, Colossians and Ephesians, these two books, Colossians and Ephesians, were written during the same time. And Colossians chapter 4, verse 9 speaks of Onesimus. And Onesimus was a Colossian. And in Colossians chapter 4, Onesimus is described as a faithful and beloved brother. Now, Onesimus had been a slave, and he had fled from Philemon, but he went to where Paul was. Paul converted him to faith in Christ, and then he sent him back. In Philemon 1, verse 10, he said, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. And then he wrote a letter in this letter of Philemon, and he began to seek mercy on behalf of Onesimus from Philemon. In Philemon, verses 15 and 16, Paul said it like this. He said, perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh, meaning ordinary life, and in the Lord, your spiritual connection. And so, how is it that slavery was undone in the Roman Empire, Christianity. Christianity, the faith of Christ took the slave and the slave owner and made them brothers. And when they were united in Christ, it destroyed slavery from the inside. 
So Paul is calling slaves here to a higher standard based on their faith. He made an appeal to something higher than what society accepted, and the standard is based on their relationship to God through Jesus Christ. So he's, he's now speaking of bond servants. Again, he's speaking about husbands, wives, children. He's speaking of bond servants. In verse 5, he says, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Servants are to be obedient to those who are their masters. How do you do that? Well, you do it with sincerity. You consider it service to Jesus Christ. And that's given even if they don't deserve that, that uh, sincerity, even if they don't deserve it, because you're serving the Lord. In Colossians, in chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, it says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Do it not only when their eyes on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. You see, they're not simply serving a man. In fact, their service was to God. And that insight gave them the ability to serve even the harshest of the masters. 1 Peter 2.18 says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. So this understanding enabled them to endure whatever they were put through. Why is that? Well, they were looking for a reward of faithful service to the Lord. Hebrews 6, verse 10 said, God is not unjust to forget your works and labor of love which you've shown toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So Paul was teaching them some very practical things. One, you do it with respect. You do it with sincerity because you're doing it as unto the Lord. But let me give you something else here. Paul isn't emphasizing this, but there's a practical reason. In the case of slaves at that time, Slaves could be freed by their masters. Now, there were masters who actually freed their slaves outright. But there were others who would let them buy their own freedom. The prospect of being freed was great incentive to be obedient and hard workers. And with this in mind, we can learn some lessons from the attitude that Paul is speaking of for slaves, though none of us are regarded in that way. But we can learn some things about working um, for even hard or difficult people who could be our boss. So what can I learn from this as one who is employed? Well, I should respectfully follow the orders given to me by my employer. You know, there are those who say, no, wait a minute, you know, you don't know what a jerky is or she is. Let's, let's add women to that, shall we? jerk women. <laughs> you just don't know what kind of person that is. You don't know what you're saying here. Well, I, I'm pretty sure that none of us are going through the same kinds of things that the slaves during the time of the writing of the scriptures went through. Pretty sure of that. But there's something that I can, I can learn from this. And one is, and now I have to be honest with you, as I prepared this, I began to think about it. Um, I wasn't the best employee. I'll just just be honest up front, man. I got saved when I was 20. Um, I was rebellious. I was a hippie. I got rebellious. I was rebellious. It took, it took a while for the Lord to break that wild child in me and make me become more uh, willing to, to, to serve and, and, and all. But I had attitude. I had real attitude. And uh, as a new believer, I really hadn't really ever been taught this. I, I had read it, so I can't plead ignorance. 
but I had a lot to learn. And so I don't stand up here right now as I'm gonna try and make this practical. I don't stand up here in, in, in any way considering myself to have always known this. I had learned this uh, myself. Um, because there's some people who will say, oh, now wait a minute, I work for a guy or a woman who's a Christian and, and that person's not better than me. So I, I'm gonna treat them as if I'm equal to them. They're not my superior. I remember my father, my dad obviously coming from a different generation. My father had said to me, son, you ought to be grateful that you have a job. I'll never forget that. Son, you ought to be grateful that you have a job. And this, we're talking back in the 60s. And I looked at my dad and I said, no, they ought to be grateful that I work for them. See, so I had this attitude all the way back then. That attitude seems to be the norm today. But... During that day, that was a different attitude. My dad was grateful because he came out of the Depression. My dad, you know, when he was 13, quit school. The, the, the uh, highest grade my father went to in school was the eighth grade. My dad quit when he was 13. My dad grew up in the era that was the Depression. So he had um, 12 brothers and sisters. There were 13 of them. And um, when my grandmother died, I should... Well, I'll tell you anyway. When my grandmother died, and I was there at her funeral, and we're talking about 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago now, when my grandmother died, she was 92. And I was reading, you know, information that they give you at, at the funeral. I was there. I didn't perform the funeral. Somebody else did. My grandmother had 118 great, great, Grand, great and great-great-grandchildren. 118 great and great-great. I had, at this time, 30 years plus ago, I had no less than 200 first, second, third cousins. No less than that. I did a funeral for my uncle with 200 in attendance, and almost every one of them was a blood cousin, first or second. Why am I telling you that? I just felt like it. But my father, <laughs> my father learned to work because he and his brothers would work fields. That's what a lot did during the, you know, the 30s into the early 40s. And so they worked, and my dad knew what it was like to work a long day. And he learned that prior to being 13, but he quit school at 13. So my dad had an appreciation of work. My father tried to teach me that. I didn't have that appreciation for it. I thought it was worth a whole lot more than minimum wage, even though I'd never even done the job. I should really be the supervisor within two weeks. I really should, because that, that's, just, that's just right. But it wasn't. And so I had a lot to learn. And so I'm telling you things that, as we're going to get into the practicality of this, is that this, I think, is something that we, the church, even in our day, perhaps we need to relearn these things here. You see, when I'm on the job, when I was on the job, um, I was under the authority of the supervisor or the boss. You see, in the church together, say he's a believer, I'm a believer, we go to the same fellowship. In the church, we have equal standing. On the job, he's my supervisor. She's my supervisor. So I have an obligation to listen to what they say and not to take advantage of them because that's one of the unfortunate things I've seen in my life is that sometimes the employee will take advantage of the 
of the employer, the boss, supervisor, overseer, because after all, we're brothers, man. How can you tell me to do that? And we do them less service than we should. We do less than we can. And that's just not right. What we're supposed to do, and this is what he's talking about. He says it to the slave, but it applies to me as an employee. On the job, I'm under orders, and I should be working as unto the Lord. Now, if the supervisor gives me an order that is wrong to do, well, I will not perform that order. If it's in clear violation to Scripture, so I'm not going to defraud people, I'm not going to lie for the boss, I'm not going to cheat customers, I'm not going to cover up for a lying boss. I don't do that. Uh, I've had those opportunities. When Marie and I were married and... Um, I was working in a place that was about five minutes, seven minutes drive time from where I lived. And I believe that we already had Corinne, my firstborn. And, you know, I mean, I needed work. Marie obviously was too lazy to work. No, she was a mom and she was raising the baby. So I was working. I quit school. I started working in this place and I was loading and unloading uh, semis, you know, the the trailers and when I was unloading this the trailer um, I, I you had to do what they call tear weights and various things like that and I had to put it down mark it down um, on, on, a, on a record so that the amount of weight was recorded and and all of that that's what I did and then one day somebody came in for a will call and I had this box in my hand and I asked my supervisor uh, how much is this weight? And he said this to me, I'll never forget. He said, put the actual weight down. I said, the actual weight? He said, yeah, it turns out that they had been shorting the trucking companies. They had been reducing the amount of weight that they were claiming on the box and were actually ripping off those who were taking and delivering the packages from this particular uh, company I worked for. And so at lunchtime, I went home, and you have to understand, my, my daughter, Corinne, was an infant in arms. She was a baby, m month or two old. I had a, a little apartment, I had two cars, we had bills. And I wasn't making much at all, I was making three and a quarter or so an hour. And I came home and I told my wife, I said, they're having me lie, they're having me lie. I can't work for a company that violates my integrity. I can't do that. And I turned to my wife and I said to her baby girl, I said, I, I don't know what to do, but I think I ought to quit. I have to quit. I said, my, my name means more to me than the paycheck. That's a fact. My name means more to me. See, my father told me, David, if you do anything, protect your name because your name is who you are. My father taught me that. So my name means a lot to me, my identity, my, my reputation. That means a lot to me. And I uh, talked to Marie about it. And she said, you need to do what the Lord tells you to do. And I went back and I spoke to the supervisor and I said, I don't want to work for a company that lies and has me lying on its behalf. And I ended up quitting that day. And I had no money. I had no source of income. I had no way to pay my bills, but I had my name. I retained my integrity. And within, I don't remember how long, but it was a short while, 
the Lord opened the door for another job and I went and began to work there for another company. We never missed a payment on our bills and God provided. Now this new company, the boss, his name was Jerry. He's not listening, I'll use his name. <laughs> Jerry. Phone rings, I pick it up. And Jerry says, if that's for me, tell him I'm not here. And I said, no, I'm not gonna lie for you. And I wouldn't do it. I mean, that's just the way it was. Listen, if your boss tells you to do something that is wrong and violates scripture and your conscience, you're not, you're not to do it. I won't do it. I didn't do it. And I think that's one of the reasons why God put me in a pulpit to tell you not to do it. Because God shows me he honored his word. He provided for us. And that's how I eventually came to here to teach the word of God. So I could say, my God shall provide all my need according to his mercy through Christ Jesus. The Lord always does. And if you begin compromising, so no. There are times when you say, and I told him, I said, you tell him yourself. I'm not going to lie for you. And that's just the way it is. So we don't defraud. We don't lie. We don't cheat customers. We don't cover up. Acts 5.29, Peter's, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. You see, when we're honest, when we're on time, when we're hardworking, that's a good witness. And under ordinary circumstances, it gives us opportunity to share our faith. And we do this because we want to be in the position to share about Jesus Christ. And, and the way that we live is observed on the job. They do see the way that we live. You see, in 1 Timothy 6, verse 1, Paul said, all slaves should show full respect for their masters so they will not bring shame on the name of God and his teaching. Now, second, in being obedient, we refuse to take advantage of a fellow Christian. 1 Timothy 6, verse 2, those who have believing masters, let them not despise, let them not disrespect them because they're brethren but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. And he goes on to say, teach and exhort these things. You see, when you serve the Lord, when you serve as unto the Lord, your job becomes a mission field. It stops being a source of income alone. It becomes a ministry. It changes the way that you see those who you are working with. Now notice how he says again in verse 5, servants are to be obedient with fear and trembling. That word trembling, fear and trembling speaks of respect. Show proper respect for your employer. <laughs> Resist mouthing off. In Titus 2, 9 and 10, it says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Now he says in verse 6, not with eye service as men pleases, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Not with eye service, not as men pleasers, but as servants. Now that speaks not of just doing the bare minimum. It speaks of excelling in your work. Be the kind of employee that doesn't have to be constantly checked up on. Be that kind of employee. The one that the, the, the supervisor, the boss, or whatever you call him, the one that that boss will trust. The one that that boss will say, you know, I'm going to be leaving the office for a little while. You know, could you man the phones or could you take care of what's going on? Be that kind of employee. 
Be there on time. Don't take long breaks. Don't take long lunches. Don't leave early. Be honest. Because when they watch the way that you work, you may have an opportunity to share with them about Jesus Christ. You may have the opportunity. I, I, I went to work as a, before I was pastoring and teaching in, in, in church as, as a pastor, I, I would go to work and I learned to start going to work with this attitude, God, you may give me an opportunity today to be a witness to somebody, to share with somebody about Jesus Christ. You might do that today. So give me an opportunity. If you give me an opportunity, I'll take that opportunity. Now, I didn't do it while I was working. I didn't just go off to a corner and talk to somebody when I'm getting, you know, I'm on the clock, I'm getting paid. I never did that. If I shared, I would share during breaks. If I shared, I would share at lunchtime. I used to work just up the street here. There's a place here called FMC. It's not even a mile or so away from here. And I used to work at this place. And I, would, I was teaching Bible studies. I had a 10-minute break in the morning. I had a half-hour lunch, and I had a 10-minute break in the afternoon. I would take the 10-minute break because I was teaching Bible studies, and I would take that 10 minutes, and I would find a corner. I would open up my Bible. I had my notebook, and I would prepare Bible studies. It was only 10 minutes, but I would do that. Then the 30-minute break that I had for lunch, I ate very little. I still do. I get fat for no reason. I guess oxygen is fattening. But I, <laughs> I, I would, at lunchtime, I would find the same little place, and I would prepare Bible studies. I had 40 minutes of working on Bible studies every day at work. Because I was teaching a Wednesday night, I had a studies that I was teaching. I needed to find places to work on the Word of God because I had babies, small babies, and I had to be a father at home. So I had to learn to divide up my time and how to prepare studies and how to do these things so that I could give my wife and my children as much of myself as I could. My kids would go to bed at 8 o'clock and uh, even when they were 20, they would go to bed at, I'm just kidding, they'd go to bed at 8 o'clock, and then I would, I had a little desk that we had in the front room, and I would prepare studies. That's what I did. I had to, I had to discover how to use my time most wisely. I guess most of us have done that. If not, you have to do that. I learned when to study, how to study. I learned how to digest things more quickly, how to make notes. I learned how to do all of that and still was working my job, still was working three, I was working my job, going to school, and playing on three softball teams a, a, a week. So you can do things, everybody has 24 hours. Same 24 hours, you just learn to divide those into the most profitable bits of time. That's what I did. So I would do it, and, and I did that for, for a number of years. And when I was in work, I didn't take from my employer, I worked. That's what he paid me for, not to, not to witness on my, on my downtime, my 10 minutes or half hour if I had opportunity, that's when I would do it. And so I did it as unto the Lord. I wanted to be a servant of Christ. I didn't want to be constantly checked up on, and I wasn't doing it for people to praise me. I didn't need the attention. I certainly didn't want their admiration. You see, in verse 7, it says, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men. The Christian understanding is you're, in fact, serving Jesus. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10 says it well. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. You see, work that was done unto the Lord could result in people getting saved. And finally, he says in eight, verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, 
whether he is a slave or free, and you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he receives a reward. No good work goes without reward. Colossians 3.24 says, you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. Receiving God's commendation. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That should be our greatest desire. You know, the praise of men is flattering, but it doesn't last. If what you do is to be noticed by man, there'll be somebody else who will do more and be more noticed than you. But if what you do in secret, if you do that with the knowledge that you shall be rewarded openly by the one that you served, that motivates you. There are a lot of things that many of you do that nobody knows you do because they're secret things. It's between you and Jesus. You don't need to have your name on a pew. I donated enough money to buy this pew. You know, there are churches where they put plaques on the pews. You gave money, they put your name on that pew. There are churches, I've seen them, where they have bricks outside of the church with donors' names on each brick. And you could have different size bricks, which meant you gave more or less, and they were built that way. You know, there are things in the church world that I don't think Jesus smiles at. A lot of things like that. What you do, do as unto the Lord. Do it with all of your might. And don't, when you're young, when you're young, don't think I'll do more later. Because what you do as a young person is you set the pattern for the rest of your life. And if you're lazy in serving God now, don't think that one day you're going to be just a superstar serving him with all your might. It begins with the small things. It begins with the small faithful things. It begins with the things that, that you do just because you love him and have integrity as you serve him. One of the things that when I first began to teach as a paid pastor, as a servant who was on salary, the, uh, I was an assistant pastor and the senior pastor said to me, the very first time you receive a check for your, for your service to the Lord, you're going to feel guilty. And he was right because what I'd been doing for years for free, it suddenly felt wrong to get paid for. It was difficult to adjust to that. Uh, Marie can rem uh, remember this. Uh, early in our, in our marriage, I had a man who was very wealthy. He lived in a very wealthy area, and he had asked me to come over and to tutor his children. He had two young, a, a son and a daughter, and he said, would you come and tutor my children? He had been a friend of the family for a long time, and he was very very well off and and so I told Marie I said you know what I'll I'll go and teach the kids they need to know the things of the Lord I have it was a Saturday I have I, I'll do it for them so I went over and 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 as I sat down I taught I started in the gospel of Mark I started sharing with them who Jesus Christ is and when I was about to leave he says how much do I owe you and I never went back I told Marie I'm not for sale I'm not for hire what I have, I give. I receive freely, I give freely. It was very hard for me to receive a salary because I want to always do things as unto the Lord. 
And we all should always have that as a first impulse, to serve God for free. Why? Because he gave his son to me so I could have eternal life for free. I don't want to profit off the things of the gospel, and none of us ought to do that. Our reward comes from the Lord, and, and the commendation is what really drives us. And then finally, when he says in verse 9, masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven. There's no partiality with him. Simply put, and we'll close with a couple of thoughts, don't bully your employees, especially fellow believers. Use your influence, if you can, to win them to Christ. Show them what a real Christian is. I was in a shop just the other day. Um, I, think I, was, I think I was buying some, some pot for John at a... No. I was in a shop. And Marie and I were there. And the music was playing in the background. And as I was seated there, it was Christian worship music. And I thought, what a, what, what a great testimony. This, this fellow is using his business to bring in the sweet and, and wonderful sounds of, of praise to God. And, and that's the kind of things that we ought to do. And, and the masters ought to use their influence the, in, in today's parlance. And, and the bosses shouldn't bully employees. They should, they should treat them with kindness because ultimately each one of them ends up before the Lord and, and there is no partiality with him, and each gets proper payment for what they've done. So Paul didn't confront slavery. It was so ingrained that the people wouldn't have understood. Instead, he preached the gospel, and he made people family, and in doing so, gutted the power of slavery. Because that person is not just a tool. That person is my brother. That person is my sister. That person is my family. And that's how Christianity undermined slavery in the Roman Empire. It was by taking the slave and the owner and making them family. And in that, it undermined the foundation of slavery. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day.